What does it mean to rest? Well, at some point every 24 hours, we rest in sleep. And the reason I said at some point is because in our community this past week, some of our flood victims and some of our first responders and some of our officials have been surviving on power naps and not having actual true sleep. But at some point, we stop usually and sleep and have a time of rest and sleep. Sometimes when we're traveling, we may stop at a rest area and get off on the side of the road, stop driving for a little bit, stretch our legs for a moment. Different times of the years, there's holidays where schools and some businesses will, will close down for the purpose of letting their students and their employees have a, a rest from the normal routine of life so that they would be able to enjoy and celebrate with family and friends. So most of the time when we hear the concept of rest, we think about what it means to, to quit doing something or to stop doing something, to have a moment or a time away, a break, so to speak. But there's also another way of thinking about what it means to rest. For instance, if I put my hands and, and rest them on this pulpit, I'm confident, mostly because I know Norm built this pulpit, but I'm confident that this pulpit is not going to topple over and cause me to fall down into the floor. I, I trust this pulpit to support me and to lift me up. And so this morning, we're not talking about the kind of rest that involves a Sunday afternoon nap or the kind of rest that involves you sipping a latte with a friend at a coffee shop. Now, the kind of rest that we're talking about is, is a firm, foundational rest. The kind of rest where we know that we are being supported by something that will hold us, something that will help us. So with that description, with that idea of rest, that firm supporting rest, I ask us to consider a few questions. How do we rest when floodwaters rise up? How do we rest when mass shootings rise up? How do we rest when hurricanes rise up? How do we rest when the persecution and the executions of Christians rise up? How do we rest when we live in a world, a culture, where sin and evil and pain and sorrow, trials, tribulations, terror, and calamity are constantly rising up? How do we rest in that kind of world? Well, the Apostle Paul is going to help us answer those questions in his letter to his friend Titus. Titus chapter 3, verse 8. Paul writes, this is a trustworthy statement. Now, normally you'd read a phrase like that and you would think, okay, he's getting ready to tell us what this trustworthy statement is. But this time it's not. It's actually the last sentence that he wrote. It's verses 4 through 7. This trustworthy statement, this sentence that he just wrote is full of incredible truth. It's in full of incredible hope. We've looked at that for weeks now, looking at unpacking that kind of part by part. So we've seen a lot of that, but, but for the benefit of our minds this morning, I want to briefly look at it again so that we will know why Paul's saying that what he just said was so trustworthy. So look back, if you will, in verse 4 and verse 5. 
He writes, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. The most remarkable act of kindness that has ever occurred in the universe occurred on a cross outside of Jerusalem. The most remarkable act of kindness that has ever occurred in the universe was not a donation of food or clothing or money. It wasn't donating some volunteer hours at a shelter. Those are very, very kind and very loving, and we need to very much keep doing those things in the weeks and the months to come. But the kindest thing that has ever been carried out and will ever be carried out is the volunteering of Jesus of Nazareth, volunteering His body, donating His blood to be the sacrificial gift for the penalty of sin, the payment, the satisfying payment for sin. John Stott put it this way, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But don't miss this. God, on the other hand, sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Before you existed, Jesus Christ substituted himself in a place that he did not deserve to be. Before you existed, Jesus Christ died for your sin. That is the most perfect act of kindness ever. And kindness like that is trustworthy. That's why Paul included it. That kind of kindness you can trust in. Next, he says in verses 5 and 6, He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. If God does not save a person, that person cannot be saved. Why? Because the best deeds that we have are never enough to make us right with God. Our good deed credit card will always be declined for insufficient funds. It's not enough. God rescues, He redeems, He saves according to His mercy. Not just out of, but according to all of this mercy. He, he gives. It's not like we said a few weeks ago, I have a billion dollars and I give you ten. Then I'm giving you out of what I have. But if I have a billion dollars and I give you a million, I'm, I'm giving according to what I have. God gives according to what He has. He gives His mercy. So what does this transaction look like? Well, God deposited the just and right penalty of sin temporarily on Jesus, but completely on Jesus, and in a way that the penalty was completely and totally satisfied. God did that on Jesus on a Roman cross. And because of what Jesus did on that Roman cross, and because he was raised from the dead, because of all that, God now is able to take the perfect righteousness of Jesus and through faith, deposit it 
into your spiritual bank account. So you can't make the deposit on your own. All you can do is repent and ask God to save you. All you can do is plead that God would make the transaction. When we were helpless, when we were dead in our sin, God's mercy came to our rescue. When we were far, far, far away from God, Jesus brought God's mercy to us. When we were dead, he died. When we were helpless, he rescued. Mercy like that is trustworthy. You can trust in that kind of mercy. You can trust in that kind of kindness. Next, Paul writes in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I would imagine as most of us watch TV, if you had power on Sunday and even Monday morning, you, you watch these images that are we just can't explain because we've been to these places, right? We've, we've driven down in these neighborhoods. We've been to some of these stores. Some of them just opened. And we look at this devastation and we go, ah, how is that possible? And then even a few moments ago, Meredith with, was sharing with me that her and Colin have some friends. They, they lost everything. My sister yesterday was, was helping a house, just one house. She sent me a picture of just one house that they tried. I think it was about a fourth of what they cleaned out of just one house, and it took them all day, and it was this mass of stuff. It's, it's stunning. And folks like that, they need hope. And so when Paul gives a trustworthy statement and he throws the word hope in, we should listen. We should pay attention. Because we need to take food, and we need to take water, and we need to take clothing, and we need to help clean up, and we need to do it so that once the cleanup is done and once the food is given and once the house is rebuilt, that there's hope beyond the house and there's hope beyond the cleanup. That's the kind of hope that we have in Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said it this way. My faith rests not upon what I am or shall be or feel I know, but in what Christ is in what he has done, and in what he is now doing for me. That's great. See, Jesus Christ is not some dead religious leader who had a few good years but then tripped up and got himself killed. That's not who Jesus is. Jesus was born into this world. He lived in this world. He ministered in this world. He was crucified. He was killed. He was executed. He rose from the dead. He is alive now, and he has promised to all everlasting life, everlasting joy to all who believe in him and trust in him and cling to him and rely on him. That's who Jesus is. And until death comes, the hope of salvation keeps telling a believer over and over again every Sunday morning, every Wednesday afternoon, every Friday night, your faith is real because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. Hope like that is trustworthy. The hope that is found in the salvation of Jesus Christ is trustworthy. The mercy and the kindness found in the salvation of Jesus is trustworthy. And so Paul's writing this sentence, 
And he's letting Titus know, Titus, I want you to, to tell the folks this, that this salvation, the hope of salvation in Jesus, it is stunning. It's amazing. And all the stuff that I just wrote to you, Titus, I want you to know, it is trustworthy. You can build your life on the kindness and the mercy and the hope of salvation in Jesus. You can build your life on that. You see this past week in our community, rising waters have flooded out homes and businesses and schools and even churches. Rising waters have washed away, crumbled our roads, crumbled bridges, crumbled dams. This, this is what we have seen today. And those rising waters, they have washed away things that we trust in to, to live in, things that we trust to work in, things that we trust to drive on have been crumbled and washed away. But this trustworthy statement speaks to those rising waters. What Paul is writing here actually is designed for us to build our life on so that when things in life crumble, we actually have a resting firm place of support. Look what he says in the next part of verse 8. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently. Let me ask you a question. Do you talk about God? I mean, I know we do here. That's what you're supposed to do at church, right? But when you leave here, do you talk about God? Do you have conversations about God? And if you do, what do you say about God? Do the kindness and the mercy of God, do the, do the hope that found in Jesus, do those things come up in conversation? See, what Paul's doing, he's telling Titus, look, I'm insisting, I'm, I'm really pleading with you, keep talking about this. Keep, keep talking about these trustworthy things. Paul wants their confidence to be built. Why? Well, the reality is we live in an uncertain world, do we not? We live in a world where even in the last 24 hours we found out that, that halfway around the world that a peace rally can turn into a deadly explosion. We live in a world where routine tests can turn into heartbreaking reports. We live in a world where fair skies can turn into flash flooding and devastation. So Paul's writing here because he wants Titus to be sure to keep telling the people at church, hey, the time to think about the kindness and the love and the hope of Jesus is right now. In fact, there's never a time that we shouldn't be thinking about the kindness and the hope and the love of Jesus. This is what Paul said to the church at Ephesus. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19. And I pray that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. Surpassing is a great word. It means to go beyond the usual. It means to go beyond the normal. One of my favorite stories that I ever heard about the, the late Clemson coach, Frank Howard, I'm sure I've probably shared it before. You may hear it 20 more times over the next 20 years. But it was the story of, of All-American Banks McFadden, and, and they were training for some type of jump. I don't know if it was long jump, triple jump, some kind of jump. And so Coach Howard went, and he found what the record was. I'm assuming maybe the NCAA record. And he went, and, and they measured out what the record was. 
And he told Banks McFadden, all right, this is what we're going to work toward. Here's the record. I want you to be working and training toward this. And when McFadden turned around and started walking back to the starting point, Coach Howard moved it farther. <laughs> so the whole time he was training, he was actually training to go way beyond the mark. The surpassing greatness of the power of God always goes beyond the mark. It's always beyond. It's not ordinary, it's extraordinary. So this is what we do on the good days. This is what we do on the days when the sun is shining. At least particularly what we do on the good days. We don't saturate our minds with news and sports and weather and gossip and entertainment and social media. We, we don't saturate our minds with those things. Rather, what we do is we brush our teeth and we drink our coffee and we sit at the stoplight and we open our textbook and we eat our pizza. And while we're doing those things, we keep telling ourselves over and over again, real simply, the kindness and the mercy and the hope and the love and the care and the power and the authority and the grace of God are extraordinary. That's what we keep saying to ourselves over and over again. The kindness and the mercy and the hope and the care and the love and the power and the authority and the grace of God are extraordinary. We keep saying it over and over again. Why? Because they're always beyond the mark. Because they're, they're always surpassing. And see, everything in life is not beyond the mark. Everything in life is not surpassing. See, the reason we do that on the good days and on the good times is because we know the other days are coming, right? We know the days are coming where at home or at work or at school or in the community, things are going to be frustrating or things are going to be frantic or things are going to be falling apart. We know there may be days where a tornado comes or a hurricane comes or a flood comes. See, we know those days are going to happen. But when the stress and when the strain and when the rain and when the trials and the tribulations and the troubles and the terrors of life, when they show up, we are already in the habit. Our hearts are already full. Our minds are already full. Oh, wait a minute. The kindness and the mercy and the hope and the love and the care and the power and the authority and the grace of God, they're extraordinary even for this and maybe I should say, especially for those moments. See, those things about God are surpassing. They're always rising higher. Always. Always. So what we're doing, in essence, is this. We are building confidence every single day. Building confidence every single day in the kindness and the mercy and the hope of God because of what he is doing in and through Jesus Christ. So I want to call on Spurgeon to help us see what that looks like in real life. Spurgeon said this, The child in danger of the fire just clings to the fireman and trusts to him alone. She raises no question about the strength of his limbs to carry her or the zeal of his heart to rescue her, but she clings. The heat is terrible. The smoke is blinding. But she clings, and her deliverer quickly bears her to safety. And here's what it has to do with me and you. He goes on. In the same 
childlike confidence, cling to Jesus. That's, that's what we do on this week and four weeks ago and ten weeks from now. There's never a time that we as believers don't cling to Jesus. That should be our most diligent work, clinging to Jesus. These trustworthy things about Jesus we cling to. But we don't just cling to them. We do something else with them. Look at the next part of verse 8. So that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. You see, we don't take this trustworthy statement and, and etch it on a nice plaque and you know, hang it over here on the wall in the sanctuary and just walk by it every Sunday and go, oh, well, that's pretty, that's nice. No, we take this trustworthy statement and we live it. We, we, we go do something with the trustworthy statement. This is how Jesus said it, Matthew 5, 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That, that in a such a way is a huge deal there. We do it in such a way that people might be drawn to God. That people might be led to God. Not led to you, not led to the pastor, not led to the church, but led to God. That's the primary goal. The primary purpose is that we would shine in such a way that people would find God. I love how somebody put it. I really want to find out who said this because it's good, but I don't know. It's unknown for now. The real mark of a saint is that he makes it easier for others to believe in God. That's something we should etch on signs and put on the doors as we walk out, right? Are we making it easier for people to believe in God or are we making it harder? Is Christianity more attractive to the people in our homes, the people that we live with, the people that we work with, the people we go to school with, strangers, in the grocery store, strangers in traffic. Are we making Christianity more attractive? Do, do we really live as people who believe that the kindness and the mercy and the hope and the care and the love and the power and the authority and the grace of God really are surpassing and extraordinary? Listen, we're going to have a lot of opportunities to do that in the weeks to come. As someone has said in several different ways, we are not on a, a sprint with this relief. We're on a marathon. It's, it's going to be a lot of opportunity over weeks and months. And so we have opportunities now to do things. Listen, there's some opportunities today. I'm going to tell you about them at the end of the service. But I want you to know that our church can't do everything, and our church can't fix everything, and everything does not have to be a church-wide effort. But I do want to encourage you to do what you're already doing. Some of you have, have drawn a radius around your house and said, how can I help people right here? Some of you have driven across the river and looked for ways to help people. Some of you have, have given. Some of you have donated. Some of you have gone. Some of you have given. Some of you have prayed. And we need to keep doing it. It's not over today. It really is it's just beginning with this week to come. But I plead with you that even though we can't do everything, we can't fix everything, we're still supposed to be what God wants us to be. So God has, has called us to take this trustworthy statement and to go live it out. So we need to encourage each other in love and good deeds. We need to encourage each other that this truth about Jesus Christ is surpassing. It's, it's always higher. It is extraordinary. And here's the amazing thing. If we're living like that, if we're living out this truth of Jesus, God has designed our good deeds 
to be a channel for people to find out the surpassing greatness about Jesus. So here's the question. Why do people need the surpassing greatness about Jesus? Why do they need to find that out? Look what Paul says next. These things are good and profitable for men. The message about Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, is the most important message ever. And so what we believe about him, what we think about him, what we say about him, and how we represent him matters. It matters a lot. Years ago, Ravi Zachariah shared a story. Some of you may have heard this story before about two men in Yugoslavia. I think I'm pronouncing their names right, Yakov and Zimmerman. This is how Ravi tells the story. Yakov commiserated with an elderly man named Zimmerman on the tragedies that he had experienced and talked to him of the love of Christ. Zimmerman abruptly interrupted Yakov and said and told him that he wished to have nothing to do with Christianity. He reminded Yakov of the dreadful history of the church in his town, a history replete with plundering, exploiting, and indeed with killing innocent people. There was a time in Yugoslavia that this man is saying the church was killing people for selfish gain. He went on, my own nephew was killed by them, and he angrily rebuffed any effort on Yakov's part to talk about Jesus. They wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs and lives I cannot ignore. Yakov, looking for an occasion to get Simmerman to change his line of thinking, said, Simmerman, can I ask you a question? Suppose I were to steal your coat, put it on, and break into a bank. Suppose further that the police sighted me running in the distance but could not catch up with me. One clue, however, put them onto your track. They recognized your coat. What would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? Zimmerman said, well, I would deny it. And Yakov said, oh, but they would say, well, we saw your coat. And Zimmerman didn't like the analogy, and he told Yakov to leave. Zacharias goes on. Yakov continued to return to the village periodically just to befriend Zimmerman, encourage him, and share the love of Christ with him. Finally, one day, Zimmerman asked, how does one become a Christian? Yakov taught him the simple steps of repentance for sin, of trust in the work of Jesus Christ. He gently pointed him to the shepherd of his soul. And Zimmerman bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed and surrendered his life to Christ. As he rose to his feet, wiping his tears, he embraced Yaakov and he said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to the heavens and he whispered, you wear his coat very well. When the sky is blue, we need to wear the coat of our salvation well. When the sky is full of rain and flooding appears, we need to wear the coat of our salvation well so that our hearts can see and remember what we have in Jesus but also that we can show to a world that is faint and weary and exhausted and discouraged and depressed and stressed 
and despondent and full of despair so that we can show them the truth that rises above all other truths. And what truth is that? Well, that truth is this, that the most extraordinary, surpassing, valuable reality in the universe is knowing Jesus Christ. Let us wear that coat and wear it well. Let's pray. Father, we are weak, at times selfish and prideful. At other times, we are strong and kind and good. And that just reminds us that we're human and and we need you. And so we ask now that we have come and and sung and worshipped you. We've worshipped you through prayer and preaching. We, We ask that you would take our worship and that you would use that worship to strengthen our hearts. That there would be a deep desire for us to go with this truth, these trustworthy things about our Jesus and that we would love to live them out. Most of us have a lot of security today, and so we ask that you would help us to to be uncareful, to be uh, a little outside of the box, and maybe look for some different ways to minister. There are many today, maybe even some here this morning, that are exhausted from a week of, of ministering. So maybe, maybe give them rest today. But we ask God more than anything that you would help us to remember these trustworthy things are good all the time. And that we would begin to tell ourselves over and over again on the good days and the bad days, when the sun is shining and when it's not, that knowing Jesus is extraordinary. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.